I was a camp counselor for about six years at a summer camp in New Hampshire, not a covenant camp. That's everyone's first question when I tell them I was a camp counselor. Um, but when I was a camp counselor, this one week that I'll always remember, I was the counselor for the 11 and 12-year-old girls. And it was the end of our week together, and after a whole week of being together, doing Bible study and devotionals and getting to know them, I challenged them that as we close our week together, maybe when we pray to this time, everyone could take a turn praying out loud in the group. Now, if you know 11 and 12-year-old girls, they're shy, really cool. Sometimes they are a little nervous about praying out loud. But we were going to do a popcorn prayer. Has anyone ever heard of a popcorn prayer? Yes, if you're like a youth group person, you know. It's a great way to get young people to pray with, to relieve some of the nervousness. You pray, and then when you're done praying, you say pop as a way to say, like, I'm done, and the next person doesn't need to, like, wonder if they can go. So you're going to do a popcorn prayer. But before we started, this one girl, Raina, she told me that she was really nervous. She told me she had never prayed before. She didn't know if God wanted to hear from her. What was she supposed to say to God anyhow? What if she said the wrong thing? So I explained to her that talking to God is like talking to a friend, and God just wants to hear from you. But I assured her if that made her too nervous, she did not need to pray out loud. So we began our prayer. A couple of girls prayed. And when it got to Raina's turn, there was a long pause. And I thought, okay, she's probably not going to want to pray out loud. Then I heard her take a deep breath. And she said, with the deepest sincerity, she said, Dear God, hi, pop. I'll never forget that. <laughs> Sometimes it's hard to know what or how to pray. It can feel intimidating. What if you say the wrong thing? What are you supposed to say to God anyhow? Maybe you don't talk to God often or you don't know how to talk to God. Maybe all you have the courage to say is hi to a God you hope is listening. Today we're continuing with the theme where Courtney left off with last week, the theme of prayer. Last week, Courtney talked about problematic prayer. If you were here or tuned in online, she talked about our posture in prayer and how it's problematic to have a posture that brings glory to ourselves or seeks to manipulate God. And after Jesus names these problematic ways of praying, he continues on in these next verses that we're looking at today to give us an example of how we ought to pray. This is a model prayer that we receive from Jesus. It's a model in that it shows us what the posture of our hearts should be and the kinds of things that we can pray about. And it's a model in that it gives us words when we don't know what or how to pray. So as we heard last week, we ought not to pray in a way that brings glory to ourselves or seeks to manipulate God. Instead, this week we're going to talk about how we ought to pray in a way that brings glory to God and recognizes that God already knows what we need. Courtney, and I guess actually Jesus, since Jesus preached this sermon first, set me up perfectly with these two themes that I want us to look at. 
because the Lord's Prayer has six petitions or requests, and they're focused on these two themes. The first half is about bringing glory to God. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. And the second half is about God knowing our needs. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. And each part of this prayer is something that has already come to pass while it's also still something to come. And so when we pray these words, we pray in faith for the full implementation of these things in our lives and in the world. So let's look at both halves, these two focuses of the prayer. The first half of the prayer is about bringing glory to God. The first petition is about God's name. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. These lines remind us of a few things. First, it reminds us that this is a communal prayer. We're called to pray in fellowship with other believers to our Father. In God's family, our priorities are reoriented, they're reordered so that our sole focus is to bring glory to God and also that we pray in the company of sisters and brothers and that we know that our sisters and brothers are praying with us and for us to our Father. Second, we're reminded that when we pray, we pray to a personal and approachable God. Most of the time in Matthew's gospel, Jesus refers to God as my Father, but here as he's teaching the disciples to pray, he encourages them to approach God as their, as our Father. God is our Father, who the author of Hebrews says we can approach with boldness. Hebrews 4.16 says, so let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy. We will find grace to help us when we need it most. We can approach God in prayer knowing that he cares for us And so this is the posture of our hearts as we come before God in prayer. The third thing that this line about God's name teaches us is that God's name should be hallowed or be made holy. This is not praying that God would become holy because God already is holy, but it's that we, all people, would treat God as holy. We would treat God as who he already is. And God's name is made holy by our living our lives in a way that displays the holiness of God. This is a theme as we especially see throughout the Old Testament with the people of Israel. Ezekiel 3.23 says, I will sanctify my great name, and the nations shall know that I am Yahweh, says the Lord, when through you I display my holiness before their eyes. We honor God's name by doing his will. We declare the holiness of God's name by honoring God in the way we live our lives. And this is what the second and third petitions of the prayer are about. 
your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, or in Matthew's gospel, the kingdom of heaven, more than anything else in his ministry. If you read through the gospels, you'll hear Jesus talking about it all the time, the kingdom of God. This kingdom that Jesus proclaims and that we pray for comes slow and small, but grows to make room for everyone like a tiny mustard seed growing into a giant tree where birds can nest, or like a woman who's working yeast into dough so that bread rises. Jesus said God's kingdom belongs to the poor, to the persecuted, to children. This kingdom is a kingdom of peacemakers and those who show mercy and thirst for righteousness. In this kingdom, the last are first and the first are last. This kingdom is like a treasure that brings rejoicing and laughter. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who gives to his workers out of lavish abundance and where there is always enough for everyone. It is a kingdom that is at hand and it is a kingdom that is still to come, a kingdom that we're still longing for. When we pray, your kingdom come, we are praying that the kingdom of God would be established here and now, right where we are. And as people who belong to this kingdom already, the way that we live our lives should reflect the ways of this kingdom. N.T. Wright says, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. This is the world we are prophesying with our very lives. This is a prayer that our lives would be conformed to the will of God, so that God's will would be made known on earth, so that God's glory would be made known through us. We are called to prophesy the kingdom of God with our lives to participate in the coming of God's kingdom now, in expectation of Jesus coming and finally setting all things right. By the way we live our lives, we show others that another way is possible. I don't know about you, but when I look at the world around us, don't you agree that we need more of God's kingdom now? We, God's people, people of God's kingdom, we are the ones who make this reality of the kingdom a reality on earth until Jesus comes. In the midst of darkness, in the midst of violence, in the midst of death, in the midst of war, abuse of power, hatred, immense grief, around us and around the world, we are people who proclaim a different way, a different kingdom. We are people who seek to establish that kingdom now. We seek peace and justice. We offer light and hope. Rachel Held Evans writes, there is still more of this kingdom that is to come, Jesus said, and so we await a day when every tear will be wiped from every eye when justice will roll down like a river and righteousness like a never-ending stream, when people from every tribe and tongue and nation 
will live together in peace when there will be no more death. Oh God, may your kingdom come. The second half of the prayer transitions to the petitions of the community. And each one of them reminds us of our unqualified need for God. You can't pray these lines and believe that you are self-sufficient. The first petition of this half is that God will provide us all what we physically need. Give us today our daily bread. We are asking God to provide the daily necessities that we need, the basic things that we need every day to live. We rely on God one day at a time. This should call to mind for us the story of the Israelites in the desert when God rained down bread from heaven, enough for each day. And if you know this story, you might remember that the Israelites were not to collect extra, to store up extra for themselves. They were only allowed to collect what they needed just for that day. And they had to live trusting that God would provide just enough bread for tomorrow too. We are not self-sufficient. I know that we like to think that we are. I like to think that I am. But we are totally reliant on God for our daily needs, just as the Israelites relied on God for their bread every day. And sometimes, many times, the way that God provides our daily needs for us is through others. We rely on other people. God gives us our daily bread through the work and hands of others. Theologian Amy Jill Levine says that this line is kind of shorthand for praying that God will work in every aspect of our daily needs being provided for. She says, we might pray, give us this day healthy seed, fertile soil, and sufficient rain and sunshine. And while we're at it, Give us this day wise farmers, skilled harvesters, strong millers, and patient bakers. Someone has to plant the seeds, tend the field, harvest the grain, mill, create dough, and do the baking before the bread is placed on the table or on the tongue. God is at work caring for us, providing for our daily needs through the work of every person who is part of the process of getting our food to our tables and all the other ways our daily needs are taken care of. So our prayer for God to give us our daily bread is a prayer for the whole process, a prayer for God to sustain and watch over every aspect of what keeps us alive every day. Maybe when we go home today and we are having our lunch, I would encourage you to think about the things that are on your plate Think about all the elements and people that were involved in getting your food to your table today, including yourself. But as you begin your lunch, pray and thank God for your daily bread. Thank God for everyone and everything that was involved in the process of you receiving your daily bread today. And think also of those who do not have their daily bread today and pray that God would provide for them too. 
This is a petition, a request for God to give us our daily physical needs to meet those needs for us. And the second and third petitions of this half of the prayer are about God meeting our spiritual needs, about God forgiving our past sins and protecting us from future sin. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. How many of you have prayed the Lord's Prayer in a group setting where the phrasing of this line was not pre-established? Anyone? Do you know what I'm talking about? (laughs) Everyone in this moment either becomes a hesitator, a mumbler, or extremely confident. Is anyone else a hesitator? I'm a hesitator. I wait to hear what they say in the first fill-in-the-blank, and then I know what they're going to say for the second fill-in-the-blank. Here at this church, we say, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Growing up at my mom's Catholic church, we would say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Growing up in my dad's Baptist church, we would say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. You can ask me about my church upbringing after. (laughs) But which one is it? Sins, trespasses, debts? When you're with a group of Christians, you'll hear any or all of these options. But they all get at the same thing, our sins, the things that we're in need of forgiveness. But trespass and debt, I think these words can help us. They illustrate a little what it is that uh, we're in need, the violation that we're in need of forgiveness for. Debt, it reminds us of the economy of sin and forgiveness, that there's an imbalance in need of being amended. Trespass reminds us of the boundaries we must be mindful of on our Christian journey. The point is that we have sinned, we have trespassed, we have debts, and we need God's help to set things right. We need God's forgiveness. And we cannot do this on our own. We need God's help. A main concern of this verse is whether or not God's forgiveness is contingent upon us forgiving others. In verses 14 and 15, the amendment at the end of this prayer kind of makes this this question bigger. It says, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. So it sounds like if you don't forgive others, God doesn't forgive you. But that makes a lot of people a little nervous because from what we read about God in scripture elsewhere, that doesn't seem to quite be how we understand God's forgiveness. I think Jesus' parable in Matthew 18 can help us out a little. There's this story that Jesus tells about a king who forgives the debts of his servants. And then one of those forgiven servants turns around and refuses to be merciful to someone who's indebted to him for much less. The king finds out about this and questions the servant and says, shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And then the king makes the servant pay back his debt. I think the point here is that we have to remember the reciprocal nature of forgiveness. 
we have to remember that we are the ones in need of forgiveness. We are the ones in debt. We are the ones seeking to be forgiven by God, and indeed we are the ones already forgiven by God. So the question is, are we mirroring this forgiveness in our lives with the ones in need of our forgiveness? As Christians, there's an expectation that we will be forgiving people, that we will not hold grudges, we will not seek payback, we will not harbor anger. We are a community of the forgiven, and so we must also be a community of forgivers. And we need God's help to do that. We are a forgiven people, and so we also pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We pray for God to forgive us of past sins, but we also need protection from future sin as well. This word temptation here is a little tricky for many scholars too, because God doesn't tempt us. Many scholars prefer to use the word testing here in the way that God tested Job. God, don't test us. And while God can teach us important things through testing, we can still pray to not be tested. I don't know about you, but I would prefer not to go what go through what Job went through in order to learn about the sovereignty of God. We can pray that we don't want God to test us. It could also mean something like, God, lead us so that we don't fall into temptation. Just as we need God to provide our daily bread and we need God's forgiveness, so also we need God's help fleeing from temptation and fleeing from evil. The final plea of the prayer is that God would deliver us from evil. I was thinking about this line this week. I thought this could be a prayer all on its own. God, deliver us from evil. God, deliver us. God, deliver us. We need your help. I think each line of this prayer could be a prayer all on its own. So I wonder if one of these lines of the prayer maybe speaks to you today. What is the prayer of your heart? How is it that you're being drawn to bring glory to God or maybe ask God to provide a need? Our prayers don't need to be complicated or fancy. Our prayers are not for show. They're not for our own glory or to manipulate God. The purpose of prayer is to bring glory to God and in our prayer to bring our needs to God, recognizing that he already knows our every need. God just wants to hear from you. Our prayer could be as simple as saying hi to a God that we know is listening and recognize that he hears our cries, our prayers, our pleas, now and forever. Would you close in praying the Lord's Prayer with me? And we will say sins and sinners. <laughs> our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins 
as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.